This episode of the Policing Matters podcast is sponsored by the Master of Science in Law Enforcement and Public Safety Leadership Program at the University of San Diego. Learn how this nationally ranked online program can help you be a force for change at san diego.edu slash police one. Welcome back. You're listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Well, we hear from so many people talking about health and wellness today on social media. It seems we hear repeated messages about post-traumatic stress disorder or illness, as some are now calling it. We know law enforcement officers see so much tragedy, suffering, trauma, and mayhem Depending on where you police and what assignments you may have, you may be exposed to much more than the general population. Are we overexposing ourselves to the repeated stories of suffering and trauma? Today's guest has written about PTSD and other effects of life as a police officer. Joel Schultz operates Street Smart Training, and he's the founder of the National Center for Police Advocacy. He retired as chief of police in Colorado. And over his 40-year career in uniformed law enforcement and criminal justice education, Joel has served in a variety of roles, academy instructor, police chaplain, deputy coroner, investigator, community relations officer, college professor, and police chief, among others. Schultz earned his doctorate in educational leadership and policy analysis from the University of Missouri. In addition to service with the U.S. Army Military Police and CID, Schultz has done observational studies with over 50 police agencies across the country. He has served on a number of advisory and advocacy boards, including the Colorado Post Curriculum Committee as a subject matter expert. As a pastoral counselor, Schultz was a registered psychotherapist in Colorado. He has written The Badge in the Brain and 15 Ways to Calm Your Mind Without Driving You Crazy. Well, welcome. Welcome to Policing Matters, Chief Joel Schultz. Thank you, Jim. And it's good to uh, see you. We've collaborated on a lot of things, but haven't uh, gone eyeball to eyeball. And uh, I, I appreciate you reading my resume. I like to call it colorful. My wife likes to say I can't keep a job. <laughs> That's right. No, and, and just as well, great to see you and, and talk with you. You and I have done so many debates in our State Your Case column, our award-winning State Your award Case column, right. <laughs> where we square off on controversial issues. And I want to go on record as saying we do not get to choose the sides. So uh, sometimes I'm rooting for a cause I thoroughly do not believe in, but I think, I think we do a pretty good job uh, staying objective. Yes. Uh, sometimes we have to play defense attorney to the child molester on these things. Oh, yuck. So tell us, let's talk about PTSD. Um, I'm seeing a, a, a ton of it on social media. Is it over or underdiagnosed? What, what are your thoughts there? I think it's largely misunderstood. I, I think what um, information that particularly police officers as laymen outside of the mental health profession, um, although very involved in the mental health profession, um, and particularly supervisors, trainers, training managers, curriculum developers. Um, uh, and, and I have to say, um, 
with some trepidation, even within the mental health community. Uh, and, and I'll just say as an aside, you know, I'm, I'm a, a, a chaplain and um, I'm kind of, I would say maybe an EMT or paramedic when it comes to um, mental health issues. So I'm not a licensed counselor and I'll have to put that asterisk there on everything that I say. Um, but, but there's not a complete agreement about a lot of mental health issues. Um, you know, the, uh, the Bible for mental health diagnostics, uh, which, which I'm not authorized or trained to use is the DSM. And I think we're in uh, edition five now, and they have revised the definition of PTSD. If you look at that definition, there's like five or seven categories and several um, things within each category. And if you have X number of these things within this number of categories over this period of time, you end up with a matrix that's really complex. Um, so I, I think back back to, back to the original issue, I, I think we don't really fully understand um, these stress injuries and uh, how we respond to them either in a preventive way through resilience training or uh, resilience enculturation, we might say, mm. um, or what we do with somebody that has a diagnosis of PTSD. Uh, is that person still eligible if they are being treated with medication? Can they still be on the street? It's, it's just very complex. And I don't think we have a handle on it because we spent uh, most of the history of policing up until, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years um, basically ignoring that other than your four hour block of stress management in your police academy. Yeah. And I mean, it's evolved over the years, over the decades, how we've dealt with uh, trauma and, and the manifestation. So, you know, back in, in my day and before, you know, the answer was at the bottom of a glass, right? I mean, people right. went to choir practice and had a drink and maybe, maybe mentioned it or even talked it out. But today, and, and I don't know if it's, it's because of social media, the prevalence of social media and everybody's got a phone and everybody's got a story. Are we a profession that's worried? Well, I mean, is, has it affected the majority or, or do you know what percentage of the profession of law enforcement uh, has this at, you know, at the top of their list, if they don't have PTSD now, are they afraid they're going to get it? You know, the remarkable thing is that um, most officers do have resilience. Um, even officers, the, the research has shown um, um, that are involved in killing somebody. Um, they're generally okay over time. So, mm -hmm. It, it one of the one of the myths I think about uh, PTSD it's it's kind of analogous to COVID you know it's it, we all think oh I didn't have it but I'm probably going to get it and gosh maybe I did have it before it was a thing you know because I had the sniffles the December before the um, and I, I we're almost that way with with uh, with uh, PTSD and I I I, I prefer. Uh, that we talk about it in terms of stress injury. One of the biggest problems with dealing with um, the changes that happen in the brain is that 
all of our vocabulary comes from our four-hour block of stress training back in the day. Um, and we talk about stress. At, we, we use terms that we use in talking about emotions. And so we view something like PTSD or lesser forms of stress injury, which probably all of us have to some degree uh, on, the, on the continuum, um, in emotional terms, as though it's just an emotional thing. And certainly one of the manif- some of the manifestations of it um, are emotional, but it's a physiological, neuro- neurological thing. Your brain actually changes, and because of the way that we're designed or evolved, if that's offensive to you, the way that we're designed is that we have, have this capacity for our lizard brain to take over the rest of the brain. And that's, it's basically stuck in gas pedal to the floor mode in, mm-hmm. um, in, in severe cases of uh, PTSD. In terms of prevalence, which was, I think, the original uh, gist of the question, I just don't think we know. You know, we talk about uh, high divorce rates. We talk about high substance abuse rates. We talk about high domestic violence rates. We talk about high suicide rates. I don't know that we know any of that is true relative to the rest of the population. Yeah, no, I mean, we're experiencing, you know, record-breaking numbers in depression and suicide and drug and alcohol abuse, just like you said, across the general population. Um you know, especially the opioid crisis uh, contributions, 100,000 uh, overdose deaths in the last 12 months and rising, right? Um, but I love what you said earlier. Uh, you mentioned resiliency. And I'm wondering, are we countering with enough stories of resiliency? I mean, there are people who have been through really traumatic events and uh, somehow they come out on the other side. And I've talked to other guests about, you know, partners working in the same radio car, experiencing pretty much the same things. And yet one doesn't deal with things well, the accumulated trauma, and maybe the other bounces back. What's, can you explain resiliency and how do we get it? You know, in our, um, we, we have in the field of mental health, a type of CSI effect. Um, you know, I, I've been a death investigator and, and a detective, and, and uh, uh, so I can watch the true crime shows and hear the true crime podcasts and um, say, well, you know, that's not right. But, but everybody is an expert because they watch all those things, right? Right. And, and, and we've seen a, a genuine impact on the criminal justice system because people have this high expectation that there's going to be this uh, van load of uh, armed CSI experts uh, coming down on every crime scene. I think we have the same kind of, I think I know what you're talking about in mental health because the pop psychology um, is kind of all over. And we have so attended to, and I'm going to sound like a a hard-hearted SOB here, um, but we've attended so much to our feelings and, and our emotions that we have almost put emotions in the driver's seat with the idea that, well, um, there's really nothing we can do about it because I feel this way or I feel this way. And we, we have, um, you know, I have a, a, 
some mixed feelings about the immediate uh, crisis intervention meetings after some big event, Um, because just to express your feelings, how do you feel about that? Let's let's attach uh, a word to the way that you're feeling. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think there's value in that, but there's also a false expectation that if you just feel it deep enough or talk about it enough, that those feelings are going to come under control. And in terms of therapy for real stress injury, I don't think that's true. And I think there are, there are licensed people that, that will say that, that, that just talk therapy. Um, You know, the greatest asset we have in terms of resilience is our friends. Um, And so, so, so talking and sharing is important, but it's not necessarily curative. Um, And, and again, I, you know, my wife's a teacher and she's been around long enough um, to see the uh, fragility of kids now because they are taught so much about their emotions and not about resilience. And so we now have a cadre of young officers who may um, take their feelings too seriously and not realize that this part of the brain can take over. And in fact, in, in my book, The Badge and the Brain, and, and the, the, the other one, 15 Ways to uh, uh, Calm Your Mind, I talk about physically taking your fingers and tracing from the lizard brain past your, what I call the linking brain to, to the uh, logic brain, and taking those thoughts captive would be a biblical uh, phrase for it. Um, so how we teach that, how we integrate that into our training, um, I don't know, but if we train people that if you have to shoot somebody, or if you get shot, you're going to get PTSD, uh, which I think is a subtle message that happens sometimes by well-intended instructors and practitioners, um, then we've taken away the control and what is very distressing about, um, stress injury is that, and I'm talking stress brain injuries, is that we think we've lost control. Um, and, and if we've been somehow subtly conditioned that at some point you're going to lose control of your, your, of your brain function, um, then have we not rehearsed falling into that trap? And, and I will say this, the first time I became aware of PTSD, um, I have a friend of mine, I, I didn't get permission to use his name, but he, he's retired. He was a conservation officer in Missouri, uh, had lots of, um, you know, worked alone out in the woods. Uh, he was not highly favored in the Ozarks as a wildlife enforcement officer. Um, and he was set up um, one night in particular, and he was attacked by three good old boys out in the woods. Now, uh, my friend is, if, if you've ever seen a cartoon of Little Abner, that, that's, this guy is rock solid. He grew up hard scrabble. He served in the Air Force. He was a truck driver. And I can tell you, there was nobody I'd rather see behind the wheel of a car coming over the hill to back me up than, than this guy. He, he, was, he was just a man's man, good, good character. Um, but he had that event on top of some other events and, and did develop with the diagnosis of, of PTSD. And so I, I just realized, I say, if, if this can happen to him, 
then it can happen to anybody. It, it's not a matter of just having fortitude of character and control of your emotions and being able to stuff stuff down inside. Mm -hmm. It is a, a neurochemical, biological, physiological thing that can happen from um, a singular event, but probably more significantly, uh, what we don't realize and don't attend to is the cumulative um, stressors that we have. Um, and I had a guy who was just, I doing some stress training for some firefighters the other day. And I had one of the guys says, uh, Oh, you know, I don't know. It's just never bothered me. And, you know, that bothers me a little bit to, to not be bothered. So there's, you know, there, there, there's all kinds of, uh, uh, things about that. I, I think we just need to recognize that as you point out, two people could experience the same thing, but no two people have the same background. Mm -hmm. Uh, stress and trauma is cumulative, kind of like grief. You know, if, if you have something that caused you grief, the death of a loved one, uh, that's not your first grieving experience. We never leave behind all of the grief that we've experienced. And so every grieving experience is layered some way on top of that other grieving experience and it, and it's cumulative. Um, and it's not like we get used to it. We might learn to deal with it in healthy ways, but it's it's burdensome. And I think that's true with with stressor events and traumatic events uh, as well. So, you know, two people going into the same bloody mess, um, one might be physically healthier at the moment. One might be uh, in a better place uh, mentally or in their life course um, th than another. And so we we are. Uh, just like COVID sometimes some people get it and some people don't. Yeah, that's a great analogy. And and I like what you just said about uh, dealing with it. And I wonder, you know, it seems to me that after traumatic events, and this is totally anecdotal, right? Stuff that I've seen and observed, but, you know, in a big department where I came from, um, you know, we've had shootings and, you know, just God awful situations and it seems to me that the officers who seem to deal with it better have other things going on in their lives, right? They coach or they're doing a second job or they have a great hobby or, you know, they're very athletic or whatever, but it seems like they do better. Now, is is that avoiding it or is that dealing with it? And um, what's the difference? And do you, do you see that, that if you preoccupy yourself or you you have a lot of you know irons in the fire does that help you deal with stress better make you more resilient i think the issue of resilience in mental health um and from lots of things not not just ptsd but from um depression actually my book 15 ways to calm your mind without driving yourself crazy gives some strategies for uh resilience um, so it's just like physical. If you work out, you watch your diet, you keep an eye on your relationships. Um, you are introspective enough to be ready to uh, self-improve and listen to criticism, but not so introspective that you ruminate and, and think about it all the time and feel like you're inadequate. Um, so it's a matter of life balance. And, um, and again, that doesn't make you immune um, any more than it, than, uh, uh, it, it, you know, a generally healthy person can get 
other types of, of uh, illnesses. But I think it is a great, um, a great uh, prophylactic to have a generally healthy lifestyle and, and physically, mentally, and spiritually as well. Um, and again, you know, my, my good friend, I think had most of those things in balance. And uh, by the way, he knocked all of those three people down in the <laughs> middle of the night to the, to the uh, forest floor. So, so he survived. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we probably have to contemplate in terms of training is, um, you know, I think you and I have had, had, have seen the uh, evolution of officer survival, which is now kind of a bad word. Um, we went from um, the 10 deadly errors, right? Um, was that the name of the book from the uh, uh, Pierce Brooks? Yeah. Pierce Brooks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we didn't see anything until about the nineties. And then, um, all of a sudden was officer survival, you know, du jour. And, and so now we are absolutely immersed in officer survival. Um, and I think probably among the pioneers of mass education in, um, mental health was, uh, uh, Dr. Gilmartin, um, with his emotional survival book. So we're, we're kind of in the, as we were in the, I think the nineties, that was the first class I went to that was officer survival, uh, uh, street survival. Um, now, now we have, have moved through some officer survival cycles and we're kind of at another end of that. We're, we're just probably in the embryonic stages uh, of understanding first understanding uh, mental health and then secondly understanding again how to integrate that into our training and uh, as i you know we talked about a little bit before the the camera started rolling um i've been a i've been a trainer almost all of my life you know small i was an fto with less than two years on the street you know in a small department um and what i have seen is that we do not integrate our subject matter very effectively. Um, so the, the guy that teaches constitutional law, the guy that teaches search and seizure, uh, the gal that teaches emergency driving and traffic stops, uh, and the uh, team that teaches uh, arrest control, um, do those five entities ever talk to each other to help the officer who's going to have to integrate all of that information when they get out there and make their first solo traffic stop. Uh, but it was never integrated in the instruction. Um, and, and, and do we need to, and how do we need to introduce stress? For example, I'm, I'm not, I was a driver instructor and a general instructor, but I didn't do fighting or shooting. Right. Um, and, um, probably all of us have been through the stress course, you know, somebody yelling at us to reload and why did you miss that? And, and, you know, that kind of stress, I just, I don't think that's the kind of stress that is experienced um, in a gunfight. I've never been in a gunfight, but you know, we've got thousands of videos now. Um, and I, I'm just, I'm just not sure that the stress that we're putting artificially on uh, students at the range is much realistic 
preparation for the stress that they're going to undergo in a real fight. I was talking, I had a chance to have a brief interview with uh, Dr. Lewinsky in Las Vegas several years ago. Uh, and I said, what do you think about the state of our scenario training? And he said, um, I'm sorry, that's my Hill Street Blues ringtone in the background that you're hearing. <laughs> Sometimes I don't answer the phone because I just love that tune so much. Great show. Um, but he said, you, you'll, you'll never get the real kind of panic or hostility or fear. The best you can do in scenario training uh, with actors is B-movie quality. Um, so it, it's a real challenge uh, for the, the training profession to uh, develop truly integrative training that's going to better prepare uh, an officer. I told my... Uh, my firefighter friends the other night, I said, you know, we, in policing, we do what if, what if there was a sniper? What if there's a second gun? What if, you know, somebody, whatever. Um, and I'm not sure that firefighters play that game. Um, and I'm biting my tongue right now because I've got a whole bunch of firefighter jokes I would like to tell. Um, but what if you go to a scene and there's a fatality? What if there's a uh, a child's body that you find at the fire scene. What if you have a brother, sister, firefighter that goes down? Have you rehearsed what that's going to be like? Or is that going to be a totally new experience that your brain has no pre-existing trained neural pathways to process? And it, it, it just is, it's going to explode in your brain. How are you going to deal with that? So a little what ifing, even for those uh, traumatic events, not just tactical events, I think, um, uh, can can be of some help and we need to we need to think, think about the reality of that and again i haven't been through i've certainly had confrontations with guns knives fights uh being run over and those kind of things uh but i've never been in a firefight really can't speak authoritatively to what goes through a person's um brain or, or at the moment or five years later or 10 years later mm -hmm. or the next time they're confronted uh, with a similar situation and have some hesitation because of all the crap they had to put up with the last time. Uh, I know at least one injured officer that uh, would not have been injured had it not been for a previous um, life and death struggle. And he probably went a little more lightly in the second confrontation that injured him hmm. had he not already had that, you know, had to kill a guy. Um, so, just, you know, very complex. And the, and the question for trainers and researchers uh, is um, what's best for the overall mental health of police officers and how, how we can integrate that into the training. And I will say um, that one of the things I found in, in uh, as you mentioned in the introduction, I've done observational ride-alongs with over 50 agencies uh, from San Francisco, Reno, New York City, uh, Albuquerque, Sebastian County, uh, Arkansas. That's probably my favorite ones. If you've seen the movie Smokey and the Bandit, you've, you've done my ride along with. Um, but police work's police work. Now, I've never worked for an agency of more than 22 officers. But in, you know, whether it's L.A. or San Bernardino County uh, or Chicago or Denver, uh, uh, or Phoenix, all those places I've been with, I never saw anything that I hadn't seen already as a police officer uh, in my small agency. So it's not the policing that differs so much. It's the resources that you have, but it's the subculture. It, it, how does leadership direct the officers um, 
to act. You know, there are some agencies that everybody trusts because everybody's, you know, held accountable and trained well. Um, and every agency has, has problems, but, um, you know, I've, I have very recently, relatively recently been in a squad room where a lieutenant happened to be working the street that day and, and worked a fatality and came back and was talking about, man, that was really rough seeing that poor lady. And, uh, one of the other guys who was a combat vet and, and, a OIS vet on that department said, you know, kind of laughed and said, yeah, it kind of got to you, didn't it? And it's like, okay, that just kind of put a lid on the opportunity for a discussion about the reality of the things that we face. Um, and, and that, that officer who's a great officer, uh, but he kind of, he kind of shelved that whole discussion that could have been very healthy, um, you know, for, for the Lieutenant. Yeah. I'd like to, I'd like to get into training, but first I'd like to take um, a moment and thank our sponsor. Do you want to be a better leader? Who doesn't, right? The University of San Diego has created an incredible online master's degree specifically for law enforcement professionals. The Master of Science in Law Enforcement and Public Safety Leadership Program was developed by law enforcement for law enforcement, and it's consistently ranked as one of the best online programs in the country. Whether you're preparing for promotion or simply want to be the best leader you can be, the MS. Lepsol program will help you be a force for change. Affordable, online, and endorsed by law enforcement. Learn more at san diego.edu slash police one. And we're back and I'm speaking with Joel Schultz, operator of Street Smart Training and founder of National Center for Police Advocacy, uh, chief from Colorado. And we talk a little bit about training. You talked about the inadequacy of our four-hour blocks of training, you know, for uh, resiliency and and trauma, you know, observing trauma. Um, We talked a little bit about emotional awareness. And, you know, I, I was listening as you talked about the officer who said that the previous encounter impacted how he dealt with the second situation. And it makes me wonder about emotional um, awareness. I I remember reading somewhere about a study that said officer-friendly types, you know, the officers that are willing, hey, take it easy, you know, put down the gun, uh, that they they tend to be more likely to be on the wrong end of these confrontations. Is that true? Or, um, you know, we... We we are criticized in law enforcement training for making officers too twitchy in situations, right? Right. Always watch the hands. Always approach this way. Don't stand on this side of the door. You know all these things, and we're criticized for that. But then, are we going too far with? I mean, de-escalation. We we at least tell people get behind a car or some you know get cover if not concealment at least get cover. Are we moving towards exposing officers too much or what, what, what else is needed in training? I guess that's what I'm trying to ask. Oh, um, well, a couple of things. The, the, uh, the triad of FBI studies on um, law enforcement officers killed um, 
and assaulted is is really i mean every officer ought to be familiar with that and it's great research and but one of the conclusions that came out of this just what you said that uh, gee it seems like the officers that um have been killed uh disproportionately have been described as a friendly kind of uh, person and I, I don't accept that at face value because if you're going to say that a population has this characteristic um, that may be different, that may show up differently, say an officer killed, you, you've got to have the concurrent study that says, well, what are the rest of the officers like? So if, if you've got, say, and I don't know what the numbers are, but say 70% of officers killed in the line of duty are described by their colleagues as uh, easygoing and, and uh, friendly. Well, that probably means that 70% of all officers are easygoing and friendly. And in my experience, um, officers are very adept at going from friendly neighborly to, you know, now it's time to, to get down to business. Um, but on the other hand, I've also written an article and there's a video in the archives as well. Um, um, with uh, Doug Wiley that I did a, 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 an article, can your smile kill you? And my thesis in that is that if it is the difference between the subject's expectations and the officer's um, attitude, if there's a lot of incongruence, then that can cause tension, which can cause the contact to kind of fall apart. So if you go up to a, a vehicle on a routine car stop, I know routine, um, and say, you know, my name's uh, Lieutenant Schultz. Uh, I need to see your driver's license and registration, please. Um, instead of going up and say, hey, how's your day going? I know it's not the best when you get pulled over by the police, but uh, let's just, we need to have a little chat here and we're all smiley and good old boy. If if the If the subject is like, what's going on with this officer or are they pulling my leg or is, is he psychotic? Then that, again, that dissonance uh, and incongruence in expectation versus performance can cause an unnecessary tension. And let me tell you, I went into this business back in 1978 with a smile on my face and an officer friendly. And I remember one of my first calls, I got out of the car um, and one of my first solo calls, I couldn't wait to get off FTO, um, which was all of three weeks back then where I was. So I got out of the car and I walked up to the porch and I was, you know, I felt like I was in my, you know, on my white steed and in my suit of armor and clanked up to the porch to see if I can help. And, uh, I said, well, what can we do for you today? Well, the first thing is you can get off my blank, blankety blank porch. That's for one thing. I thought, well, okay, we're going to leave Officer Friendly in the car next time. Uh, so, you know, I, I think we have to be, I think we have, we're consistently professional, whatever that means. Professionals consistent and, and by policy and, and the thing that tends to work most of the time. Um, then that's probably the safest. I don't want anybody to give up any officer safety for the sake of de-escalation. Um, and I don't want any officer to give up treating another person 
no matter what kind of knucklehead they are, as a person that has intrinsic value uh, and deserves as much respect as we can possibly produce. I don't want to take away either one of those extremes. Um, and it and it all ultimately has to be measured by, am I going to survive this encounter in order to continue to serve for another day? One of the things about officer survival, and we see this reflected subtly in the press, is, oh, the officer felt that they were in fear. Well, you know, it has to be an objectively reasonable fear. It can't just be, oh, I was afraid, so I shot him. Um, and the officer is not just uh, protecting themselves from injury or death. They're also protecting everybody else, because if they become out of commission, then all of their resources, their weaponry and perhaps their vehicle is now uh, at the hands of their attacker. Uh, plus, the attacker has not been taken successfully into custody. Plus, you become another um, rescue burden and attention burden for other responding units, whether fire EMS or whatever. So, you know, officer survival is uh, and it's not inherently selfish. It is uh, altruistic in a lot of ways for the sake of uh, of other people. And so we we cannot leave in any of these things, increasing our sensitivity, increasing our de-escalation efforts, uh, increasing our being in touch with our emotions and vulnerabilities. Um, we have to maintain the center post of uh, getting through the shift well. And one of the things that I'm thankful for, I've been very uh, uh, fortunate to work with wounded officers and, and their families um, through an organization. Um, and uh, to doing retreats and, and getting really to know some of these officers. And I just became so, so thankful that uh, I got at the end of my career and still had my mental faculties, still had my relationships intact with my wife and children, um, still had a body that was, you know, mostly functional. Uh, although I, you know, I'm 65. I got a Rolodex of doctors, you know, to go to. Uh, who is it this week? Um, but it, it's hard for a 20-something cop. Certainly wasn't. Certainly wasn't on my mind. How am I going to retire financially, spiritually, mentally, physically healthy uh, 20 or 25 years from now? And one of the things I think we need to give the option, I know we're having a recruitment and retention uh, problem, but you know what? If police work is killing you inside, go do something else. If you've, the, the, the Veterans Administration says, if you have um, over 180 days of service, so if you've been in the Army for 200 days and then you get some kind of honorable discharge, you're still a veteran. Um, if you do the minimum two-year hitch um, and get out and never see combat um, and spent the whole two time, you know, two years cleaning latrines, you're a veteran. And if, if you have survived law enforcement two or, two or three or five or ten years, you can walk away from that career proudly saying, well, I'm a veteran. I did my time. It's now time to shift gears. Hmm. And so having that option and feeling not feeling like you're trapped into doing something that's killing your soul every day. Um, I, I think, again, in our culture, we can't we, we, we don't want to forget the police officers that have left because, you know, we talk about the uh, the blue family and we talk about the camaraderie. 
but man, you get forgotten very quickly if you get injured or if you decide to retire early. Yeah, so true. And here, here on on everything you just said, um, and I agree. You know, in these really tough times of recruitment and retention, uh, the job's not meant for everyone. And if it's killing you, then you got to go. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's the answer. And um, I think we need to do better training in resilience. We hear so much of one, you know, it's one sided argument so far. Are we doing enough? at police one with articles and trainings and webinars to, to help officers look to alternatives to look to resilience. I, I will tell you this. I, uh, and I ask our, our editor, if, if she could do some kind of word search through the archives and it didn't seem like it was something that was technologically possible, but just, you know, I've been with uh, police one and survival news line prior to that. Um, for at least 15 years, I was trying to think back to the first thing that I wrote. Um, and in, in the last at least 15 years, I've seen a, 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 an explosion of articles about lifestyle and health and mental health and PTSD and, and uh, uh, surviving after trauma. And so I, it seems to me that police want at least in their, editorial preferences and the number of articles about this related subject and uh, the number of contributing writers that do that. I think P1 has done a, a, a stellar job at being out front in addressing some of those issues and does a good, I sound like I'm buttering my own bread here. Um, I'm not in contract negotiations or anything, but, but I think they, I think they've really been out front in integrating that, uh, in the whole package of let's talk about the research that's been done. Let's talk about investigation. Let's talk about products. Let's talk about uh, basic street skills. Um, I, I think, I think they have been uh, a leader and a model in uh, talking about mental health and, uh, and integrating it into the, the life of the officer on the street, which is, which is always where it's at. And it always will be. Yeah, no, totally. And I mean, we've had some great experts on the show, um, you know, Dr. David Black from Cortico and John Williams out your way, Dr. John Williams, who's a reserve officer, who's just a great resource as well. So I agree with you. Um, certainly we could use more and, uh, you know, bringing attention to uh, the answer to PTSD, or at least, you know, some real trainings and maybe even holistic answers to to just, you know, a miserable existence. Um, you know, there's a lot of really good positive stories out there and um, you're making me think about a lot of articles. And I have been in, involved in a officer involved shooting uh, that resulted in a fatality. And, um, you know, there, there are so many myths and realities out there of what an officer goes through and, you know, things like anniversaries of the shootings. I mean, mm -hmm. without realizing it, I'll feel, you know, uh, a certain way and then look at the calendar and, and just, you know, it clicks like, oh, yeah. And uh, I mean, it was, you know, almost 25 years ago, but I can recall it like it happened yesterday. So that's something I think we should talk about, um, maybe get some of the 
officers involved in shootings to talk about that, to share. So it's not such a mystery because we don't do well with mysteries in, in law enforcement. Uh, um, we like to know, you know, be able to predict the outcome of events. So, hey, it's been great talking with you. You're you're an awesome resource. And uh, I, I always enjoy crossing foils with you in our debates. I look forward to them. Uh, what's next for you? Where, where can our listeners find out about what you're writing and, and what's out there? Uh, really just Google Joel Schultz, S-H-U-L-T-S, no C's, no Z's, and a bunch of stuff will pop up. I, I, I write for some other folks as well as uh, P1. But to contact me, probably the simplest way is to uh, just type my name into the search bar uh, at at Police One, and an article will come up, and it'll say to contact Joel. Click here, and that'll run my that'll forward my Police One email to uh, my. That that actually sounded more complicated than just giving you an email, but I think that's that's probably the the best way to do it without memorizing something. Well, we're gonna beat you to the punch and list you under our show notes. So oh, great. listeners can just click on that. Hey, thanks so much for your military service, your contributions to law enforcement. You're making the profession better and you're shedding light on a lot of really uh, interesting and substantial issues, um, issues of importance. Um, thanks, Joel. Great to see you. Uh, same here. And I know we both could be out somewhere on a lake fishing, but we want to continue to contribute to the profession. And I thank you very much for your service as well. Hey, thanks. I appreciate it. Hey, to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Listening to Joel Schultz, uh, chief from uh, the Denver, Colorado area and uh, police one contributor. He is the operator of Street Smart Training and founder of the National Center for Police Advocacy. Hey, you should really check out what he's been writing. Great stuff. Hey, let us know what you think. Drop me a line at policingmatters at police1.com, policingmatters at police1.com. And let me know what you think, who you want to hear about, who you want to hear from, and I'll see what I can do. All right, stay safe. And I hope to hear from you. And I hope you're listening soon. Thanks a lot. Take care.